Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. On this podcast, we've begun exploring philosophies to defend liberty. And today, on January 30th, 2023, we're going to continue with consequentialism. What the heck is that? (laughs) We're going to get into it. I'm excited to have Chris Fryman on the podcast to talk about this. He is an associate professor of philosophy at William & Mary, as well as the author of two books. It's his second time on this podcast, so I'm excited to have him back. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we jump into things, what's the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, we might end up talking more about this, actually, as the podcast goes on. But I think that people in general probably just underestimate how much good they're able to do. So, uh, you know, uh, it it costs about uh, 4,000, excuse me, to $5,000 to save a human life if you donate to effective charities like the Against Malaria Foundation. And so most people who are listening to this podcast uh, have it within their power to to save many lives throughout the course of their own life if they uh, donate effectively. And so I think that's something that's really important for people to know that they might not know. That is a good, it's like a good statistic to know. I'd venture to question do we have a duty to do so? But we're going to get into that. (laughs) So I guess many people think that philosophy is stuffy and boring. I'm going to take a wild guess that being a professor of philosophy, that you do not believe that. So who is philosophy for? And is it really that stuffy and that boring? It can be. Uh, it, it need not be. And I think I think it shouldn't be. And I think usually it's it's not. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of philosophy is written by philosophers for other philosophers. But a lot of philosophy is is something that's accessible for for anyone, basically. Uh, and my view is that, uh, you know, when you do philosophy right, you can explain it to people who aren't really familiar with all the technicalities of you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of scholarship that you might get in like a graduate uh, level philosophy class. I think it's the sort of thing that uh, people who read blogs or listen to podcasts can get. That's a good response. So when defending ideals, there seem to be two groups of thought, some who believe that philosophy plays an essential role in understanding and then defending those beliefs and those who don't believe that philosophy is important when discussing ideals and how the world should look and all of that. Which camp do you fit into and why? Well, I definitely think that philosophy is indispensable when we're reflecting on our ideals and how we should live our lives. So one thing I think that uh, we need philosophy for is telling us what we should do. So, uh, you know, People think a lot about the way the world is, what it might be like in the future. Uh, But philosophy, moral philosophy, political philosophy, it tells us what we should do and what the world should be like. And you can't 
really answer that question. What should I do? How should I live? What should the world look like without doing philosophy? You can't, you can't get an answer to that question from science. You have to do philosophy. Why is philosophy so important? Like, why can't we just use math and science? Well, so for example, the, uh, those things can tell you that, you know, the way the world is, but sometimes you want to reflect on what you're doing and see how you can change things for the better. Uh, so, for example, you could look at a statistic, you know, you could look at social scientific research and it tells you this is how much money people give to charity or this is what this this particular charity does versus that charity or this is what your tax dollars do. These are all just descriptions of the way the world is. But you might want to say, you know, should we allocate our tax dollars differently? Should we allocate our charitable dollars differently? And to do that, you actually have to think in a philosophical way. And so when you're thinking about the right way to make trade-offs between different sorts of priorities or how to value certain things relative to others, then you're doing philosophy. Then you're doing moral philosophy. So there, I mean, I think particularly about liberty because that's the the thing I spend my time defending, the ideal I spend my time thinking about what I talk about on this podcast. Um, there are a bunch of different philosophies that relate to liberty and defending liberty in some way. What are some of them and which one do you subscribe to? So I would say the, the philosophy uh, among philosophers, professional philosophers, that's most associated with liberty and libertarianism is a, a kind of deontology uh, and probably the most famous a uh, philosopher in this space is Robert Nozick. And for him, justice is about uh, the rights that people have, the duties that we have, and it's not really about consequences. So the idea is that there are certain ways that you treat people or certain ways that you don't treat people uh, independently of the consequences. And I think most libertarian or liberty-minded philosophers fall under that umbrella. Uh, then there's another view, which I think is less popular among libertarian philosophers, although this is what I am, is consequentialism. And this, you know, as the name suggests, is the view that what makes an action right depends on its consequences. Uh, so, uh, you know, what what you ought to do when evaluating different sorts of actions you might take is choose the one that you expect to have the best results, the best consequences. Uh, and so here... Yeah, you think that rights are very important, but they're important because they have good consequences. So consequentialist libertarians and deontological libertarians might end up agreeing about a lot at the policy level and what sort of rights we want to protect, but they'll have very different reasons for wanting to protect them. So someone like Nozick says, this is just the right way to treat people, given what people are given their moral status, whereas consequentialists will say things like property rights, uh, freedom of market exchange, freedom of speech, freedom of immigration, etc. All of these things are important, but they're important because they make our lives better. So who are some of the well-known defenders of consequentialism other than yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I don't think I would consider myself a well-known defender. So I'll, I, we have good reason for excluding me from that list. Um, so historically, uh, John Stuart Mill 
and Jeremy Bentham are are very famous defenders of consequentialism. And so there are different kinds of consequentialism. So consequentialism, broadly speaking, is just the view that what makes an action or maybe a rule or maybe an institution the right one depends on its consequences, is, is, is a matter of its consequences. Now, there's a specific kind of consequentialism known as utilitarianism, which understands that in a, a narrower way. And it says, in effect, that the right thing to do or the, the right rule to follow, et cetera, uh, is the one that produces the most happiness on net. So it has a particular specification of what consequences come as good, namely those that produce, con- uh, uh, not consequence, those that produce happiness. Uh, and your aim is to produce as much net happiness as possible. So uh, happiness minus suffering. And so Mill and Bentham are historically the most famous utilitarians. Uh, more uh, current, uh, in, in terms of contemporary philosophers, uh, probably the most well-known consequentialist is Peter Singer, who has also defended utilitarianism. Uh, so I would say th- those uh, might be the big three. Uh, historically, also Sidgwick, I think is very good. He doesn't get quite as much of a, uh, you know, quite as much attention as somebody like Mill. Uh, but I think he's actually quite a good consequentialist as well. So you mentioned that utilitarian u- utilitarianism uses the metric of happiness to measure whether something's good or bad or worth doing or not. Is that the most standard metric used to measure some something's worth? Um, what do you use? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Philosophers disagree on this, and frankly, even utilitarians disagree. So, you know what 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 is happiness? There you go. That's a philosophical question. What is happiness? Uh, you might think that it is it's something like pleasure. You might be a hedonist, and some utilitarians are hedonists, and there, you know, you would understand um, a happy life in terms of a life with. Uh, a lot of pleasure or a lot of net pleasure, pleasure minus pain, something like that. Uh, I, I think there's something to this idea, although I wouldn't say that I endorse it. I think a better way of understanding happiness is in terms of desire satisfaction or preference satisfaction. So people might have a preference for certain things that don't really seem to be pleasant. I mean, maybe we could understand the notion of pleasure in such a wide way that that you know everything we want technically counts as as pleasant or a pleasant experience but i think that's probably counterintuitive so you know i i, I like watch documentaries about uh i think they're called like ultra marathoners and i don't know they they like run like 72 miles or something like that nonstop or with minimal stops and it's it's hard for me like i've never done it uh, but it's hard for me to believe that that is a pleasant experience. Just, like, like I said, maybe it is. Maybe maybe I don't know what I'm missing. Uh, that doesn't strike me as a pleasant experience. Uh, however, these ultra marathoners seem to have a very strong desire to run these marathons. This is something that's very important in their lives. And so I, I think it makes sense to say that makes them happy. So if you're an ultra marathoner and you're just overriding goal in life is to run these ultra marathons and you get to do that, that's a happy life. Is it a pleasant life? I mean, I imagine there's there's some pleasure in it, but I don't think that it's it's just a matter of the pleasure. 
And so most people, of course, you know, when you ask, what do you, you know, what do you desire in life? One of the things they desire in life is pleasure. Uh, but I don't think that's the only thing that people desire. And so here again, utilitarians will disagree amongst themselves. Some will say, no, really, it's it's all about pleasure when, when you really think about a pain versus pleasure. Uh, others are going to say, no, it's really just about, you know, satisfying the desires that you have or maybe the desires that you you would have if you were like fully informed about what you were getting, that, that sort of thing. Uh, and so that but I think those are really the two major brands of utilitarianism when it comes to thinking about you know, what makes for a good life or what makes for a happy life. This might derail us a little bit, but this is something I've been thinking about. So I've been taking a course recently on utopias and dystopias and what those worlds look like through fiction. Um, And it's interesting. So the goal of a lot of them, I mean, obviously the stated goal is happiness, but what that looks like and obviously the depiction is to show all the problems with this sort of world. Um, The depiction has something to do with making it so you never have a moment of desire, that your desires are instantaneously satisfied so that you're always content. And I don't know, that to me, first it has me thinking a lot about Thomas Jefferson and how obviously this is a very rights-based dude, um, But he talks about the pursuit of happiness. We have the right to the pursuit of happiness instead of happiness itself. Um, And I don't know how to describe that because to me, happiness seems to be more the pursuit of happiness. But then can you use the thing to describe itself? And I get into this weird cyclical thing. Well, there's there's definitely something to be said, right, for for the striving itself. So maybe... You know, maybe part of what is unsatisfying about this idea that the good life is is the happy life or the the pleasant life or the the life where all of your desires are satisfied is that we have this sort of brave new world style image of it's been it's been so long since I've read that book I can't even remember exactly how it goes but you, you know you just imagine somebody. I don't know, like on the couch on one of these, you know, Brave New World style drugs. And in some sense, it's a very pleasant life, but it doesn't seem like a good life. They're just they're sitting there on the couch. They're not doing anything. It feels good, but it's it's not it's not good as a life. And I think that's a that's a powerful criticism. And so what I would say is what this tells us is that people generally desire something more than just a pleasant life. Because, you know, if, if somebody said, look, I'll, I'll give you this life, I'll give you this drug, you just, you know, you're just on the couch for 80 years and then you die. We would kind of find that uh, very off-putting. And we would say like, no, I want to go out in the world. I want to do things. I, you know, I want to produce things. I want to meet people. I want to interact with people. I want to, I, you know, I want to help people. Uh, and, and so I think, though, if you have this conception of a happy life as a life where you're you're able to satisfy your desires, we can accommodate that intuition. Because one thing that people do desire is to live a life where you're doing something more than just sitting on the couch. Uh, it's where you actually go out and make the world a better place. That's something that a lot of people uh, have as a very strong preference. And in terms of happiness being the metric also... I think about that thing that people say where it's if if you're happy all the time, you're never actually happy. And this kind of concept of scarcity applied to happiness. And I don't know, scarcity seems kind of like a cold concept to overlay on top of 
happiness and what happiness is or to think that, oh, well, you shouldn't want to be happy 100 percent of the time because then you'll never be happy. It seems a little weird to think about that. But in a way, it's true. If you're always taking the drug while you're sitting on the couch and you're happy, then are you like not only how do we view that? Like, would you actually enjoy that? I don't know. But let's say you are happy at one point in time. If you did that indefinitely, what? Would it really, does happiness change based on how many units, I guess, or how much happiness in a period of time? Like it's within the greater context, I guess, of life. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm not sure if this is exactly what you have in mind, but it seems very plausible to me that our, our pleasant experiences, our happy experiences are amplified in part because we can contrast them with, with like sad experiences. And so one thing that comes up in, in discussions with students about this is they say, well, like, you know, sometimes pain and suffering can be good. Uh, and and I think what a utilitarian would say in response to that is, well, they're not good in themselves. So pain and suffering is is not something that you would, you know, those aren't things that you would seek for their own sake, but they can have good consequences. So maybe they make you cherish the good more than you otherwise would if you have this experience of, of suffering. Maybe you learn something very valuable or maybe that you know the the suffering is kind of you know an effect of of something that was good so like you, you know you love someone and they pass away and you suffer the suffering is not good uh in itself but it's kind of a sign that you had this like really special relationship with this person and so i would say that utilitarianism can accommodate this idea that for human beings you know uh a, a life of nothing but pleasant experiences is is in some way it's probably not really feasible uh for one thing but also th there is something to be gained from having non-pleasant experiences but it's not because they're valuable in themselves it's because they can have good consequences in the long run so maybe my issue is more with happiness being the metric or what is happiness that question that comes first um Instead of saying, oh, well, using consequentialism to see how an action, see the moral valence of an action or if you should do something or not, maybe that's not the problem so much as what what is the metric of if you should do something or not. <laughs> right. Good. So then we would get to it to a second step. So we would say, uh, OK, let's say that, you know, what what makes a life good? Uh, is is that it's happy, and then we specify happiness in some particular way. It's about desire satisfaction, about it's about pleasure, uh, whatever. But then we say, okay, whose whose happiness counts? Whose suffering counts? And a utilitarian is going to say everyone's, or everyone who is capable of experiencing happiness and suffering. That all counts. So it's a very impartial view. And so when you're deciding what's the morally right thing to do, your happiness counts, uh, but it but it doesn't count any more than anyone else's. And your suffering counts, but it doesn't count for for any more than anyone else's. And so when I, I mean, this is an artificially precise way of of making a decision. But just to give you the idea, you might say, OK, I'm trying to be a good utilitarian and I could do a handful of things right now, which one should I do? You look at your options and you say, okay, well, how much happiness for everyone affected 
uh, could I expect to produce with each option? How much unhappiness or suffering could I expect to produce for each option? Uh, and then take the net happiness of each option and then choose the one with the most net happiness for everyone affected. Again, utilitarians don't think you should actually be, you know, breaking out the spreadsheet when you're making <laughs> moral decisions. But the idea, but that's kind of the, the principle economists. of the thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, and that's the thing, too, is that, you know, the reason why you shouldn't do that from a utilitarian perspective is it would, you know, this is slightly paradoxical. But if you're constantly trying to produce the best consequences, you will not, in fact, produce the best consequences is the idea. And so some utilitarians, maybe even most utilitarians would say uh, utilitarianism will tell you not to be constantly thinking like a utilitarian. But if you say, what is it that makes an action the right one, or maybe the rule the right one, it's going to be a matter of producing uh, as much net happiness for everyone affected as possible. And everyone also, uh, from I, I would say for almost every utilitarian, if not all utilitarians, is going to include uh, sentient non-humans as well. So animals are going to count as well. So I guess here's some invitation to push back why animals and why other people even like why <laughs> so that's a good question so i mean you could take that question in, in a couple of ways so one is you know you could say well what's what's in it for me caring about other people it, like, you know, why from the perspective of self-interest should I care about other people? And I think there, you know, there are lots of answers that you could give to, the, to, to this question. Like, I think it, like your life will be better if you care about people, if you form attachments with them and so on. Um, but another way, but, but a utilitarian and, and sort of, you know, other kinds of moral philosophers might push back on another way of interpreting that question. So if you're saying, well, uh, you know, justify being impartial from the perspective of my own self-interest, they might say, well, you're kind of like, let's see, uh, morale, like you're you're sort of asking not whether utilitarianism is correct as, as the right theory of morality. Uh, what you're asking is why should I care about morality? And those are distinct questions. So utilitarianism is going to say, or a utilitarian is going to say, I'm giving you the correct account of morality, how you should treat other people. And then you might say, okay, I, I grant you that this is the correct theory of how to treat other people, but why should I care about how to treat other people? And so utilitarian could say, I don't really have an answer for that question uh, that, because that's kind of not my, that's not my area. My area is trying to tell you what the correct theory of morality is. So I'll give you an analogy, which is perhaps misleading, but but hopefully it's illuminating. Uh, so, you, you know, you could go to your doctor and she says, you know, get lots of sleep, eat right, don't smoke, etc. This, this is what you need to do in order to be healthy. And then you could respond to her. But what do I care? Like, you know, why should I be healthy? She might say, well, that's like, that's a separate question. I'm just telling you what you need to do to be healthy. Whether or not you have good reason to be healthy, that's kind of a distinct issue. And so similarly, the utilitarian might say, morally speaking, what you should do is to produce as much net happiness as possible. Whether you have reason to do that, 
within the framework of your own self-interest is is something of a different question. And maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have a self-interested reason. Um, but that's just uh, kind of, you know, uh, due to the fact that self-interested reasons and moral reasons can come apart. So then why why animals? I guess, like, because I agree to the extent that it's somewhat like you want to form attachment with other people. And obviously the people who you are attached to, you care about. But if there's someone on the other side of the globe that I've never seen, and I don't really know if they exist, or even if I do know they exist, the thing that connects us is the fact that we're humans. And so any sympathy I might feel for that person comes from the fact that I, I can imagine what it would be like for myself to be in that position. But even an animal is another, I don't want to say like, is another species removed, but like, I can't think of a better way to say that. Um, so I'm kind of struggling to see why, how animals fall into this. Yeah. So I would say just as an initial point, I do think we have sympathy, uh, when it comes to animals, like we, we are, we're sort of pained when they're pained and we can also recognize their pain as, as something that's bad and something that we have reason to avoid. And so the, the core intuition here is that suffering is bad regardless of who experiences it. And so suffering is bad when it's experienced by a member of your family. It's bad when it is experienced by a member of your species. Uh, but it's also bad when it's experienced by uh, a non-human animal. So the, the, you know, the species or the, or the, you know, whether or not the person's a member of your family is not really relevant to whether or not the, the pain is bad. And I think intuitively most people would, would grant that animal pain is to be avoided. So if, you know, if you could easily uh, and safely swerve so that you don't hit a dog in the street, for example, I think it's intuitive to say, well, you have good moral reason to swerve so that you don't hit the animal. And that seems to suggest that animal pain is something that we should avoid. Yeah. So then I guess, so suffering is bad. That to me says, I don't want to cause someone else suffering. But we've also talked about how suffering and sometimes pain leads to individual growth, which might be the right outcome. So I guess now my struggle is more with what, so how do you get from not being the cause of someone else's pain? And yeah, maybe getting out of the way so you don't hit the dog if you can. And going out of your way to stop and alleviate someone else's pain good yeah so so this is this speaks to one of the more controversial aspects of consequentialism so consequentialism says morality is is a matter of the consequences and so if the you know you have two different actions and or or inaction and the consequences are the same then morally speaking they're the same and so this that your duty to help is as strong as your duty not to harm, which is only counterintuitive. So as you said, people will will agree that, you know, it's wrong to actively harm to an animal or to another person. But most people would deny that your duty to help an animal, to help another person is, is as strong as the duty not to harm them. And consequentialists will just reject this this kind of common sense intuition now uh there's a you know a famous thought experiment that might get part of the way to the consequentialist position and this is from peter singer 
And he says, look, imagine you're, you know, walking along a road, it's an empty and you come across a shallow pond where a small child is drowning. And you could easily spare them from drowning. You just have to reach in and pull them out. It's, you know, it's not personally risky to you. You're going to be fine. You'll ruin your clothes and that's going to cost you some money. Um, but, you know, that, that's that's basically the, the entirety of the cost. Uh, it seems like you have a very strong moral duty to save this kid. Uh, the you know the cost is low, the risk is low, and it's not just that it would be a nice thing to save the kid. You would be doing something morally wrong if you failed to help. And so, like I said, this doesn't get us all the way to the view that your duty to help is as strong as your duty not to harm. But maybe it's maybe it's a first step in that direction. I think most people would grant that you're doing something morally wrong. If you fail to save that child, which implies that we have this strong duty to help. It's interesting. When I first came across this example, I was watching one of the videos you did with Learn Liberty explaining consequentialism and all the different types of philosophy. And I was you lay out this example and you're like, think about that for a minute. And I was thinking about it. And I was like, my first into my first response was, who put the baby in the pond? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, just felt this outrage at whoever put the baby in the pond before even beginning to contemplate what would I do. Uh, and I think you're right to be mad at. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the uh, uh, so this makes my job easier as a philosopher is you can just kind of stipulate away any kind of complication about how how did the baby get there? But but this is a, this is a very important point, because what it tells us is we don't want to move quickly from a thought experiment to the real world. So in the thought experiment, we could say, don't don't worry about how the kid got there. The kids, the kids there. Nobody else is there. It's just you. Uh, and you can you can save the child at a very low cost yourself. You say okay, like and you know in that case you have to save the child. It's it's very clear. But of course in the real world it's it's much more complicated. So if you're talking about our duties to help other people in the real world, then there are all sorts of complications that you can't just stipulate away. So you have to say, well, how you know how do people? Uh, uh, fall into poverty? How do they get out of poverty? What about the incentives? And so one thing I think that that you have to be really careful about when you're thinking about philosophy is that the world of the thought experiment is much, much simpler than the real world. And so you can't just say, uh, you know, we have this very strong duty to help people who are in need. Therefore, you know, you ought to give 60% of your income to, you know, this charity. Maybe ultimately that is where we end up, but it's going to be a much more complicated process than just step one thought experiment, step two, 60% of your income to, you know, this, this charity. It's interesting because a lot of this reminds me of economics in the sense that you can have a model and you have to complicate it bit by bit to account for all the different factors of production and the costs and the incentives and this and that, and it gets slightly more complicated at each level. But also there's something about consequentialism that reminds me so much of Adam Smith because the entire his entire concept of sympathy and the nature of human beings seems tied into this question of morality and why we do things and help other people and engage with other people the way we do. You know? Yes, I, I, I agree. Um, 
don't know. Some Smith, uh, some Smith scholars might disagree with me, but but I look at him as a, if not an out consequentialist, a kind of proto consequentialist. Like I, I I think for for Smith, he's he's really concerned about impartiality. Uh, he's he's clearly very concerned about the consequences of institutions and things like that. Um, so, like I said, you know, people who are really uh, sort of who know the details of Smith scholarship, maybe they can correct me. But but I agree. I, I think Smith is uh, is like a, a very insightful, if not quenchless, proto consequentialist an economist and I, and I don't, and I don't think it's a coincidence that he's both that he's both a philosopher and an economist because if you're thinking like a consequentialist uh and you know how to allocate resources how to make people happy how to satisfy their preferences then you got to think like an economist yeah so this is why this is appealing to me because I have my econ brain um so in a debate that you did with or for reason magazine I don't know if it was spoken but I read it online so maybe you just wrote it um you lay out this problem with deontological, deontological. How do you pronounce I, that? You know, I, I say, I say deontological, but it occur. I, I don't know. I, it, that could just be an accent thing. So don't take my, don't take my word. I say, de, I well, say D. Well, because yeah. you say deity, but is that because of the I? Day, yeah, deontological. I think I've heard, I think I've heard it both. It's it's funny. It's one of those things I've heard it ten thousand times, and now that I'm reflecting on it, you can't. I say deontological. Thing. Yeah, now I can't. I can't imagine the correct way of saying it now. Well, so I'm thinking denomination, but there's no vowel afterwards. But deity. I, I, okay, whatever. De- it's fine. Deontological approach. Um, so you you talk about deontological approaches versus consequentialist approaches to justice. Um, and so that's based on individual rights because rights are important versus rights because because of the outcomes, the consequences. Um, so you talk about how deontological libertarians are unable to explain why enriching the poor and healing the sick matter at all, um, especially because a lot of the time when that sort of stuff is referred to, it's like, oh, it's just a positive consequence, but that's not why. Um, so I guess what are the limitations of um, deontological thinking and what are the problems with that approach compared to consequentialism? Yeah. So, so in, in that case, right. So, um, you know, one question that I would pose to the, the, now I'm getting tripped up on the pronunciation. Uh, I know it was hard <laughs> uh, to, to keep to, saying to, it. I'll say no Zikian. I'll say no yeah. um, de- Defender of uh, libertarianism is you say, look, uh, suppose we set up sort of perfectly libertarian or classical liberal or free market institutions, property rights, freedom of exchange, et cetera. And it, it made the world uh, the world poor and miserable. Uh, would, would you still consider those the just institutions or the right institutions or the ones that we want to pursue? And if the answer is is yes, then I, I think ah, that, that's got to be wrong. 
that that that's that's just a really significant strike against your theory, because those considerations it, it seems like they have to matter. Uh, now, of course, I I don't think that's the case. That you know, if we implemented those policies, that it would actually make the world poor and miserable. But just as a, again, as sort of a thought experiment, I think you know the reason to care about those sorts of institutions is precisely because they do tend to make people happier and healthier and uh, you know more prosperous and and so on. I think an an even deeper problem, although it's a related problem for uh, deontological libertarians, is that he, so if if they really are going to to stick to their principles, they have to bite some really bad bullets about very small rights violations for the sake of huge gains. So I mean, this is just kind of a you know standard kind of thought experiment. But you say, you know, suppose committing some trivial act of theft is required to save a billion people. Like, I don't know what I don't know what that would involve uh, in terms of the details. But just imagine, you know, I, I don't know, I, I have to steal some money from somebody's wallet to, you know, to pay someone. And, you know, by doing that, I'll save a billion lives. It seems like I ought to do that. I ought to I ought to violate that person's rights. And so what this tells me is that a kind of strict deontological libertarianism has to be false. You have to have a theory that tells us that it's okay to steal that money to save a billion lives. Now that doesn't get us to consequentialism. It just says, well, consequences matter and there's more to the story than just rights and duties. But then the worry is, you know, you're you're having to bring in extra stuff to make your deontological theory plausible. Whereas a consequentialist can very easily accommodate that judgment. They say, of course, you take that money to save a billion lives because the consequences are good. But then I would respond by saying, OK, maybe that's true. But then what if the person whose money you're stealing, would it be wrong of them to defend what's theirs? If, so that's if a, they knew or if they didn't know, in either case, I would say it's not wrong for them to defend what's theirs. That, so that's that's a good question. Yeah. So I think it it. it it will depend in part on what they know. So if they know they have to give up the 10 bucks to save a billion lives and they fight back, they're doing something wrong. They, I mean, they should, they should be, I mean, if it's 10 bucks, maybe 10 bucks, that's right. 10 bucks. Uh, th then they would be wrong. Now, if you're like, well, the, you know, that the, they don't know that this is what you're using it for, or you can't convince them that this, would they be wrong? It's like, well, I, I would say at a minimum, I, I wouldn't blame them. So like if, you know, if somebody knocks on my door and they say, you got to you got to let me grab 10 bucks from your wallet because a billion lives are at stake. I would be skeptical, to say the least. And so I might I might say no. Uh, and they say, oh, but now suppose it turns out that they were actually telling the truth. Uh, I don't know if I'm blameworthy for not giving them the ten dollars because I had no reason to believe what they were saying at all. But I think in the case where I really do believe that all that's required to save the billion lives is my ten dollars, I have to I have to let the person take it, morally speaking. Mm -hmm. So I guess I have one more question for you. But first, I'm going to I'm going to outwardly reflect a little bit. I'm not a consequentialist, but I, what I'm taking here is 
context actually really does matter in terms of the morality of an action. I think something that I really, I mean, I'm very like, first principles, you got to like be able to abstract it completely before. And then in any case, like stealing is wrong. But then I think of like lemmas and like stealing for your starving child and all that. And then I don't know, it, it obviously gets more complicated once you take it out of the thought experiment. But so context matters. Um, and also everything is based off of evidence. Even a deontological view is kind of necessarily like the, the idea of rights has to be somewhat based in evidence that rights are good for people. Um, right. I don't know. This well, just seems it, striking it, to me right now. It, it, it depends on what you mean by good for people. So if you mean rights are, are good for people in virtue of of making people happier, then a deontologist is, is going to deny that. So that's my view. So my view is that rights are good because by respecting rights, we, we make people happier. Uh, but, a, but a, you know, a deontologist is going to say it's, it's more about, it's more about re respecting their autonomy, for example. So, so, I mean, another sort of interesting case that would divide a consequentialist and a deontologist is where you know that a person is going to make a bad decision for themselves, uh, and, and you can stop them from doing it. So a, a deontologist might say, look, you can't interfere with somebody who's making a bad choice, even if you know it will make them less happy in the long run. Because what you owe that person is respect, to respect their choices, even if you think they're the wrong one, even if you know they're the wrong ones. Whereas a consequentialist might say, like, no, it's a, like it's okay to interfere with people if you know that that interference is actually going to make them happier in the long run. Now, here again, I think you have to be very careful moving from the thought experiment to the real world. So, and I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make is they say, you know, look, this, this person is going to, you know, pick up smoking and it's going to make them unhealthy and they're really going to regret it. Therefore, let's ban cigarettes or like ban alcohol or ban drugs and general, like all that stuff. It becomes much more complicated when we leave the realm of thought experiments and enter the world of politics and public choice and, you know, how institutions actually work. But I do think that this is an interesting test case at the level of principle for deontologists and consequentialists. Like if you knew that your friend who was about to take up smoking would really regret it, it's going to make them much less happy over the course of their lifetime. And suppose they, you know, they know the risks and so on, and but they want to do it anyway. A deontologist might say, yeah, you, you got to let them do it. Got to let them make the bad decision, even though they will regret it. Whereas a consequentialist is going to say, yeah, you could probably, you know, uh, th you know, throw that first pack of cigarettes in the trash. Uh, because, it, you know, if they really, you know, o over the long run, this is going to be better for them, even though you are interfering with their choices. You're making them happier. And that's what you owe them. Yeah. I mean, that that strikes me with sometimes the best way to learn is through making a mistake and learning a lesson. But also, it kind of seems a little ignorant of human nature almost, because if someone really wants to do something, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to they're going to buy a pack anyways. They're going to do something stupid, even if you advise them not to. So it seems as though like. It. I don't know. Maybe this is just a case where it's it's less 
endangering or less like important in terms of the scale of magnitude, but it's, I don't know. I feel like humans do what they want at the end of the day. And that's just kind of a fact. Well, this speaks to the point about, let's be very careful moving from thought experiments to the real world, because you could say, look, uh, you know, I think it's plausible that, you know, for a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, drinking makes them less happy over the course of their lifetime. And you say, okay, let's let's prohibit alcohol. Say, well, let's let's look at the real world. We've tried that. Does it work? No, it doesn't. We we tried prohibition, it didn't work. It had bad consequences. And so you might say, in principle, so you know, you could imagine imagine that you have a crystal ball in this thought experiment. And you say, okay, you know that you know, if this person takes this first sip of alcohol. Uh, that, you know, they'll start drinking even more. And the, over the course of their lifetime, they'll be less happy as a result of it. Again, this is a crystal ball. You don't have to worry about how you acquired this knowledge or anything. You just got it. There, I'm inclined to say, okay, you could probably uh, steal that first bottle from them. If the crystal ball tells you this will make them happier over the course of their lifetime. But then you say, do policymakers have these crystal balls? Well, of course not. Do they have incentives to always do what's in the best interest of other people? No, of course not. And so you can't go quickly from the crystal ball thought experiment to what sort of policy we want might want in the real world. You have to take account of people's limitations, both in terms of the information that they have and the incentives that they have. And this speaks to why I think consequentialism and libertarianism are a more natural fit than a lot of people think that they might be. So you could say, look, I can imagine all sorts of actions that would violate libertarian rights that could, in principle, make people happier, make the world a better place. You say, okay, there's what could happen in principle or in a thought experiment and what's actually going to happen in the real world where people have limited altruism, they have limited information and so on. And I think you could uh, sort of take a very plausible line here, which says, Look, generally speaking, this is so John Stuart Mill has a view like this. He he has comments to this effect where he says, look, generally speaking, you know what's better for you than I do. And you have stronger incentives to pursue your good than I do. And so generally speaking, uh, we can sort of make the world a happier place by letting people pursue their own happiness and to prevent people from interfering with one another. Now, of course, you know, in, in the crystal ball world where I, I, I know somehow your preferences better than you do, well, maybe then more interference would be justified. But that doesn't really tell us about what sort of institutions we want in the real world where we don't have the crystal ball. And Hayek might say, prices are the closest thing we have to a crystal ball. <laughs> So yes, yes, no, I think that's I think that's right. I I mean markets are going to be you know indispensable. Yeah, you have to have prices. I think there are you know interesting debates too that we could have about you know taxes and redistribution, but I don't think there's you know there's any way that in in 2023 a serious consequentialist could deny that we we need markets in the pursuit of utility maximization. I have one last question for you. What is sure. one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Oh, uh, well, this, this might be too easy or uninformative uh, because the answer is consequentialism. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so I, uh, I I sort of became a consequentialist like 
fairly late in my philosophical career. And I would say what prompted me to change was just reflecting on some of these arguments in some of these cases and thinking, hmm, I, I don't see the other side as having a great response to it. So, for example, the, the drowning child thought experiment from, from Singer, intuitively, it, it seemed like Singer was right, that you do have to save that kid at a, at a low cost to yourself. And then if he's right about that, it does seem like we have an obligation uh, to 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 donate more to charity, to effective charities, than most of us do. And I would read counterarguments to Singer, and I thought, you know, these just, they, I, I don't know. I, I don't think they're right. I think Singer's right. And so eventually these kinds of cases and arguments piled up, and I thought, hmm, okay, if it seems to me like consequentialists are always on the winning side of these sorts of disputes, maybe I should just become a consequentialist myself. And so that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. It was it was a, it was a slow process. And if you, you know, told my I don't know, 22-year-old self that this is where I would be, I I would have not believed you. But here I am. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.